Welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Church Podcast. We pray that the sermon you're about to hear would be useful as you grow in your love for God and your love for His Church. Now, here's today's sermon. Hey, turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's okay. There are uh, Bibles either laying in the seats next to you or maybe in the, the back of the seat in front of you. And if you're using one of those Bibles, then uh, it's page 809. I'll help you out a little bit. And you can go there. Matthew chapter 5. Last week, we started a series on the Beatitudes, which is really a list of statements that are blessings over God's people. We'll get into why we can know that it's about God's people a little bit later on. But they are blessings for those who follow Christ. Let me read all of them to get the context, and then we'll look at a few of them in particular in our time together. This is what God's Word says, starting with verse 4. You know what? Let me read all of them just to get context here. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the first four, if we're looking at all eight Beatitudes, sometimes they count them differently depending on who you're talking to. I would say there's eight, and the eighth one is elaborated on. Okay? If you're looking at the eight Beatitudes, I think they're really split down the middle on the kind of Beatitude you're reading. The first four are Beatitudes of restoration. Restoration, that's verses three through six. God takes our broken state and he makes us new. We are poor in spirit. And he gives us a kingdom that is in heaven. We mourn and he comforts. We are meek and, we, and he gives us the inheritance of the earth. We hunger and he satisfies. He restores. That's the first four. The second four were the ones that we're going to be looking at today are not restoration but replication. That is, that God would change our hearts to look like His heart. He is merciful, thus we will be merciful. He is pure, thus we will be pure. He is a peacemaker, thus we will be peacemakers. And He was certainly persecuted for righteousness' sake. So we ought to, as His disciples, replicate that in our own lives as well. In other words, I guess you could say that the first four are about how God saves us, the last four about how God shapes us. God saves us and God shapes us. Justification, sanctification. 
And as we look at these last four, verses 7 through 12, this is my main idea that I really want you to get today, okay? That by the indwelling and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and only by that, two things can happen, should happen in your life and in my life. Firstly, we can reflect the character of Christ. We can reflect the character of Christ only by the work of the Holy Spirit, dwelling within us, regenerating our heart. So I guess another way of saying that, I am saying that this, these Beatitudes are impossible, yes, impossible, for the non-Christian to embody. Absolutely impossible for a non-Christian to embody them because it's only by the work of the Holy Spirit that we could be any of these things. But for the Christian, this is a comfort to you. And even knowing the perversions of your battle with sin, the war that you're constantly fighting with your sin, knowing the cruxes that you have and you fall prey to every day, knowing all of that, you can look like Christ. You can. The Holy Spirit enables you to do that. So these Beatitudes, as we look at them, they might seem very hard and unnatural, but hear me. These are not for the Navy SEAL Christians, the spiritual elite. These are for all Christians. It's true. And so this is true for you if you are in Christ. But not only can the Holy Spirit enable us to do these things, but He enables us to, hear this, delight in doing these things. I want you to see that today, that not only can we do these things, but we can go beyond that and we can delight in doing them. And why I say that, where I get that in the text is this word blessed. Anyone notice a repetition? Yeah. Blessed are that. Blessed are that. Blessed are there. Well, actually, if we look at the, and we're not going to do a word study here, but that word blessed can be and often is translated as happy in other places in the Bible. Whether it be New Testament or Old Testament, Septuagint, that word blessed means happy. So not only can we be merciful, but happy are the people that have the opportunity to be merciful. Not only can we be pure in heart, but it brings joy to have purity of heart. Not only can we be persecuted for righteousness sake, but somehow we will actually find joy as we are being persecuted for and with Christ. It's an amazing thought, something that I want us to think about today. And so, if you're a note taker, these are my four challenges for you today. Four challenges for you. And they're very simple. They go with the text. Delight in being merciful. It's the first one. I challenge you. The text calls you to delight in being merciful. That's verse 7. Let's look at it again. Blessed are the merciful. Happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, notice how baffling the first half of this sentence is. Especially if you're reading the word happy. 
right? I, I could only imagine his disciples and the crowd that's listening in, the perplexity that I don't understand. What, what do you mean, happy are the merciful? Because what is mercy? Well, mercy is, in essence, letting your attacker get off the hook and you forfeiting the joy of watching them get the consequence they deserve. That's, that's you showing mercy. They get off the hook and you forfeit that joy of watching them get punished for punishing them. That's mercy. And Jesus says, you will be happy when you get the opportunity to offer that out to somebody. It's a head scratcher. Happy. Huh. Huh. And Jesus shows he's not bluffing here. He's not kidding. When he says this statement, because later, not long later into the sermon, he applies this to real life application. Let's look at a couple. Um, Matthew 5.22 and 5.39. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. May that just weigh on you and I. Especially if we're holding a grudge today. Happy are the merciful. Or 5.39. Do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. Happy are the merciful. Jesus wasn't bluffing. And he puts it to real life application later in his own sermon. That makes you and I honestly think, how in the world could anyone possibly offer such mercy? And even more, how could anyone possibly enjoy extending such mercy? How could we do that joyfully? Well, two quick things. One, I would say, remember your own need for mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember your own need for mercy and remember the one who extended it to you. We are not dispensaries of mercy. It doesn't come from us. We are conduits of mercy. It flows through us. You see, you don't have to muster up the mercy to show somebody You just think on the mercy that you've already received yourself and you just want to let that flow through and show to somebody else. We are not dispensaries of mercy. We are conduits for mercy. That's the first way I would say how in the world could anyone do this and find joy in doing this. But secondly, at the end of the day, again, it comes down to you must have God's Spirit dwelling within you. You have to be a Christian. Non-Christians, if, if you don't walk with Christ today, I'd be talking about you. Non-Christians can on occasion show mercy, absolutely. In an imperfect way because without faith, nothing can please God. So on occasion they can show mercy, but only by God's hand could anyone be characteristically merciful in their nature, in their being, in who they are, how they are described, and then enjoy that opportunity. 
think about in my own life. Now, it doesn't happen often this way, but when Sarah's the one that's wronged me, it's, that's the rare occasion. Normally, it's the other way around, right? But when, when, on the off chance or rare occasion that Sarah is clearly in the wrong, <laughs> what's my nature? What's your nature? Milk it, right? We laugh because you know it's true for you as well. Milk it. I'm in the wrong, or she's in the wrong. I'm the one that's the victim. I want her to remember that. I want her to know that. I want her to think on that. Make her feel bad. You laugh because you know it's you too. That's our nature, our sinful nature. But what does the Spirit of Christ in us tell us to do? Let her know she is forgiven. And you move on. Christian, that's what you're called to do, and that's what we are called to enjoy doing. To extend to people what we ourselves have received. We are forgiven. But that's not natural to any of us. So first, I want us just to think on the mind-blowing perplexity of blessed or happy or the merciful. But the second half of the verse is really important as well. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. May we bask in our own reception of mercy every single day. Bask in your mercy that you receive every single day. No matter how many chances you have to show mercy, you'll never give more than what you've already received. It's true. No matter what God is calling you to do today in the work of showing somebody mercy, and maybe He's calling you right now, maybe you feel, you sense that Holy Spirit call to show mercy to somebody that you are holding a grudge to, you will never give mercy more than you've already received mercy. Have you been wronged? Have you been hurt? Are you hurt? Please hear this. Before you respond, before you respond, think on Christ's response to your sin and then respond accordingly. We give mercy, yet we, uh, we receive an abundance of mercy. Secondly, not only delight in being merciful, but delight, yes, delight in being pure in heart. That's the next one. Blessed are the pure in heart. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Consider the first half of the verse again with me. What does it mean to be pure in heart? This is not a car tune-up. Okay? This is not a bedroom's paint job. Just getting a new coat of paint. This is, in fact, a heart transplant where cancer-filled hearts are ripped out. Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19 say this, what comes out of the mouth, this is Jesus talking again, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this doesn't purify somebody, it defiles somebody. Because the heart itself is polluted. Verse 19, for out of the heart comes 
evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So what does it mean to have a pure heart? It means a heart transplant. It means your cancer-filled one has to be removed. It has to be ripped out. It means the heart of stone has to turn to a heart of flesh. And with this new heart, we hunger and we thirst for righteousness. And we despise what is evil. And we delight in that. This is the central difference between Christians and non-Christians. It's at the core. See, the, the average person loves, not likes, loves that cancer-filled heart. Oh yeah. The thing that is killing them is the one thing they would hate to have ripped out of their chest. The average person, you and I before Christ, loves that cancer-filled heart. We don't want to cut it out. We love it. Maybe you think I'm exaggerating and taking the point too far. Tell somebody that doesn't have a regenerated heart. Tell somebody that doesn't walk with Jesus that you don't watch garbage like the Grammys. I know. Don't throw a tomato. But tell them, tell them you don't watch garbage like that. What will be their response? What? You're missing out. Oh, you'd love it. It's so great. Tell them that you won't have sex before marriage. What's the response? Oh, you've got to live before you're tied down. They love it. The Christian is happy to miss out. Happy to miss out on that. The Christian delights in not taking that test drive. The Christian loves purity. And when we look at the second half of the verse, I love that it says, we will see God. Think about that. While the pure-hearted shields their eyes from the vile pleasures of the world, they get the unique privilege to behold a far greater glory. You tracking with me? While we turn our eyes from unnecessary and unrealistic sex scenes and movies, turn our eyes from that and towards the throne room of God. Hear me, we're not losing here. It's not a worse off deal. We get to see God instead. What is deadly for sinners to do is now a glorious privilege for the redeemed to do. When God purifies us, now we don't die when we see God. We're happy to see God. Seeing God we could have a whole sermon on just that. To see God. It's more terrifying than standing in the middle of an F5 tornado. It's more overwhelming than looking out over the Grand Canyon. It's more awe-inspiring than standing under the northern lights. It is seeing 
God. And one day, those of us who have the eyes of our hearts to see Him spiritually now will one day set our actual eyes on the invisible God. The one who we committed our lives to and chased our lives for. We looked away from those things for the invisible God who one day we will set our eyes on. So I challenge you to delight in mercy. Delight in being pure of heart. Find joy in your holiness. Thirdly, delight in being a peacemaker. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Happy are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Christ, of course, is our example here. Our perfect model. The chief peacemaker. Right? No one can make peace like Christ. In His single act on the cross, He made peace in at least two ways. One, He made peace with Himself and His people when He hung there on the cross, when He took the weight of all of our sin, the chasm that was between God and man was now filled in. The bridge was constructed and peace was once again given between God, holy God, and sinful man. But not only did He forge peace between God and man, but He forged peace even between the church, between one another, us. His own people, He made peace within. Amidst all of our differences and disagreements, and yes, I disagree with you on things, and you disagree with me on things, and we all disagree on different things. And yet, amidst all of our disagreements and all of our dysfunctions and all of our differences, we are one family from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We find peace in Christ. So we set our example, we set our eyes on the example that is Christ, the perfect peacemaker, to then follow suit to fight for unity, to be makers of peace. You might be shocked to hear me say, this is unnatural for you and me to do. It's true. All of them are. It is unnatural for you and I to be champions of peace. To be makers of peace. To be fighters for peace. Without Christ. By nature, I know this about you. Your sinful nature. Because I know it about me too. And I know about everybody on this planet. By nature, we are biased people. We are prejudiced people. Prejudiced to our own preferences. Our own desires. Our own likings. And we are stubborn to accommodate differences. That's true about you. And that's true about me and our sinful nature. That's true about the world. Only the church has peace to offer. It's foreign to the world. And let me show you, let me prove it to you with a perfect case study. When you look at the pride, LGBTQ movement, what is the banner that they're waving? But inclusivity 
Acceptance. That is literally the banner they wave, and yet when you tell them you disagree, you're shunned, you're canceled, you're spit at. Inclusivity. The world doesn't know anything of peace. It doesn't know anything of building bridges. Even the ones who wave the banner that they do can't do it. Only in Christ can we know what it means to be people that fight for and make peace. As regenerated Christ followers, we ought to find joy in that. Joy in making peace. And so peace amongst one another. Peace here in the church. So that means that's a calling for you. That's a calling for me. Please hear this. If you're at odds, this is getting very practical. If you're at odds with a brother or sister in Christ, whether they be in this room or not, you need to make it right. We do not sit and wait for peace to come, even when we're the victims, because blessed are the merciful. We do not sit and wait for it to come. We are peacemakers. We go and do. We'll see that later in the text when Jesus says, go to your brother if you have something against him. Don't even give your offering to God. Drop that at the altar and go make peace with your brother. And so, may you hear that calling today. But going and making peace is not only making peace amongst the body of Christ, but also go and make peace with the world. And I don't mean say we're all the same here, we all worship the same God. That's not what I'm saying by making peace with the world. But go and tell someone who doesn't know Jesus about the peace that they need and can have with God through Christ. I guess the easier way of saying that, evangelism is the work of peacemakers. Going and sharing the gospel is being a peacemaker. It's being a herald of the peace that they need and they can have through Christ. May we be peacemakers amongst ourselves and out in the world. And the effect, when we're in the business of making peace, we prove to be God's offspring. Blessed are the peacemakers for what? You shall be called sons of God. Peacemaking doesn't make us His offspring. It proves that we are. When we forge relationships with one another that are fractured, and people watch that, it proves that we are the offspring of the God who makes peace with sinners. We have inherited this trait from our Father. So I encourage you to delight in being a peacemaker Lastly, delight in being a sufferer for righteousness. Verses 10 through 12, it says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! You hear that? Happy? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please hear this. Delight in being a sufferer for righteousness. This comes from having a pure heart and a hunger for righteousness. Do you see that correlation? Do you see what I'm talking about? When we have a pure heart which hungers for righteousness and fights for righteousness, then we will suffer for righteousness in a fallen world that hates righteousness. If you love peace and unity in the body, you will naturally be outspokenly opposed to gossip amongst friends and maybe even shunned because you shut it down. Do you see this? If your pure heart loves unity in the church, you will be outspokenly opposed to the sin of gossip. If you love God's ordinance for marriage, you will naturally be outspokenly opposed to dating couples who are living together. Not just opposed in your own little private opinion, outspokenly opposed because you love so much God's idea for marriage. And when you shoot at sin, you'll get return fire. Every time. When you shoot at sin, because you love righteousness, you will get return fire. And when you're in the line of fire, you're bound to get shot. The sad truth is, though, is that we should expect to be flanked from both sides. Meaning from the enemy and from friendly fire even. If you're pure, you'll be attacked by the enemy because you're shooting at the enemy. If you're pure, you'll be attacked by the enemy. And when you're merciful to the enemy, you'll be attacked by your own side because they don't understand why in the world would you ever do that. And so it was with our Savior who was crucified by both Gentiles and his own people, the Jews for righteousness' sake. It's a sad thing when a Christian stands up for righteousness and is canceled by the world, which is understandable, but then canceled by Christians. And yet it happens. It happened to our Savior. Christ says that we will suffer for our convictions. Please hear that. Christ says we will suffer for our convictions. And if you're not, there's likely a problem with your convictions. Ooh. Let me just read Luke 6.26 and just, I won't give any commentary. I'll let, I'll let it bear on you. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to false prophets. Many people's instinct is to flee the discomfort of a situation, right? Fight or flight. A lot of times, the instinct is to flee uncomfortable situations and run to a place of less resistance and no conflict. 
to duck and hide, to cower away. But sometimes, oftentimes, we are called to stay, to make a stand for righteousness and embrace backlash as it comes. So the question then is, are you willing to accept this call to suffer? There's no need to be in China for your faith to make your life uncomfortable. Personally. Talking to you personally. Will you risk that one relationship even if it's your son or daughter? Because you're clear on gender and sexuality? As a church... Are we willing to be labeled unwelcoming because we have standards for membership? And I'm not saying labeled unwelcoming because we're unwelcoming. That's unacceptable. We need to be a welcoming, loving church. So I'm not saying blessed are the persecuted because they are self-righteous, egotistical jerks. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying if we have a standard and we stick to the standard for what it means to be a a member of the body of Christ, are we willing then to unfairly be labeled as unwelcoming? I hope your answer is yes, because that will happen and it will come. Are you willing to be called divisive because we call out false teachers? really appreciate this quote from Thomas Brooks. And even the context of the quote is absolutely amazing. It was during the great ejection. You can look that up if you want to, but this is what he says. Keep yourself more from sin than from suffering. Keep yourself more from the pollution and defilements of the day than from the suffering of the day. Keep yourself more from the evil of sin than the evil of punishment. Wow. And as we think about that, make sure that our suffering is for righteousness and not because we said something in a hateful and careless way. Again, that's unexcusable. You can stand up for righteousness in a loving way. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying a blessing over those who are persecuted because they said it in a careless way or a hateful way. But here, as the last thing I want to point out about it, is in the present text, Jesus doesn't say that we're called to suffer. That's true. What does he say? Happy are those who suffer. It's one thing to be called to suffer for a cause. It's another thing to be happy in that suffering for that cause. May we be happy to suffer for righteousness. In other words... It's not a dreaded burden to suffer for Christ. It's a joyful pleasure. In your suffering for Christ, may you find pleasure in it. I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous. It sounds crazy. But we can. Knowing that it's a chance to stand with Jesus. To stand with all the saints who have gone before us. What an honor that is. And we can find pleasure in the midst of the persecution, knowing the eternal weight of glory on the other side of this momentary affliction.
that can bring happiness in the midst of suffering. So, having looked at the text, what can we take away from it? Well, I think we ought to bear the character of Christ. That's at the forefront, right? We ought to look like our Savior in His character. Sarah and I went to the rodeo the other day, and uh, I had never gone to so many rodeos until the last three years of my life. <laughs> if you don't know, I moved here three years ago, but went to the rodeo last week, I think, and when you walk up, you pay at the gate, stamp your hand, you walk in, everyone who has their hands stamped, you've paid. Christ-likeness, looking like Christ, that's not our salvation, okay? Looking like Jesus and how you act, that's not how you're saved, right? The price has already been paid at the gate. Christ-likeness is the mark that shows you have had the payment paid for you. Does that make sense? It's the stamp that's evidence of your salvation. We ought to look like Christ in how we live, and we ought to delight in looking like Christ in how we live. Not be burdened by it, not do it begrudgingly, but enjoy it. If you're lacking a joy in walking with Jesus, and I would guess that there's a number of people that that might be the case in here. If you're lacking a joy in following Christ today, I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. I know other people would in here. May we all walk out of here joyfully serving and reflecting Christ in our lives. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you live in or near Bethany, Missouri, we invite you to join us for our worship services held on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, as well as our various activities on Wednesday nights. For more information on how you can get involved, visit our website at bethanyibc.com. 